MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 156 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, January 17th. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. We have so, so much news today. 10 pounds of news in a five-pound bag. This is going to be a lightning episode. We have four, maybe five segments. Going first to Fulton County, we'll talk about Eugene Carroll's trial, which is about to begin, uh, the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial, and finally, Congress. Yep. And we have an update for you on the Ruby Freeman Shea Moss defamation case against Rudy Giuliani with one of their attorneys, Merrill Conant Gavernsky. So we get to speak with her later in the show. Pete, I have been writing this show for a long time now, since January 20th, 2021. And this by far is the most we've had to cover of any show up to this point. Uh, and it's only going to get busier as we progress through these trials, the trial of the pile of trials. But before we get to the news, we have some new patrons to thank. So thank you very much to Emily Collins, Patrick Herlihy, Evelyn Stapleton, Autocratic Mega Fascists, a.k.a. Trump is a two-headed dildo. <laughs> Frederick Tekert. And if, by the way, the two-headed thing, that's a reference to the Daily Beans charismatic megaplastics episode. If you haven't listened, you might want to. Uh, ATX Polar Bear, Brandon Forsyth, Nikki Robinson, Marianne Christmas Carol, Pete Strzok is an entire smoke show. I think I told you about <laughs> that one last week, my friend. Um, yeah, I don't get those kinds of comments. So, you know, um, take, take, take that as you will. Um, but y'all... We'll be getting your RSVPs for our DC meet and greet. You're going to get the RSVP this Saturday, January 20th, my birthday, at noon Pacific time, 3 Eastern. And uh, thank you for being patrons. It's not just about coming to our meet and greets, but you get these episodes ad-free. You get them early. You get advanced tickets to live events. So you get our periodic Zoom calls. And you can feel good about supporting independent media, um, especially in an election year. All right, let's head down to Fulton County, where we have all kinds of stuff, a few rulings, a bunch of motions, and a, a, even a hearing. So let's start with the bombshell filing. This is from Mike Roman and his attorneys, alleging a conflict of interest based on rumors that Fonnie Willis has a personal relationship with special prosecutor Nathan Wade. This is from Roman's filing. The defendant moves this honorable court for an order striking the special purpose grand jury report and dismissing the criminal indictment in its entirety against Mr. Roman, on the grounds that the entire prosecution is invalid and unconstitutional because the Fulton County District Attorney never had legal authority to appoint the special prosecutor who assisted in obtaining both grand jury indictments. 
Mr. Roman also moves the court for an order disqualifying the DA, her entire office, and the special prosecutor from further prosecuting the instant matter on the grounds that the district attorney and the special prosecutor have been engaged in an improper clandestine personal relationship during the pendency of this case, which has resulted in the special prosecutor and in turn the district attorney profiting significantly from this prosecution at the expense of the taxpayers. So, Pete, I can't quite wrap my head around this. How are they profiting? What is the conflict here? What are your thoughts on this filing? Yeah, well, it's interesting for a few reasons. I mean, one, Roman's background is he was, he, he ran an Intel shop for the a couple of the Koch brothers or the Koch brothers. He did a, oppo research for a number of uh, candidates, including Trump in 2016 forward. So this is kind of his sweet spot to go around and dig up dirt. But what's interesting, I, I don't know how it works. And we can ask Anna Bauer, somebody who's an expert in, in Georgia law, but typically in the federal context, if you make an assertion like this, it's going to be accompanied by some sort of declaration, right? There's a claim and a filing that's says, you know, this event occurred, but usually there is some sort of affidavit or some sort of facts to say, I'm saying this happened, but here's the basis. Here are the facts by which I'm saying it and by which you can judge whether or not this is an issue. That doesn't exist in this context. Now, I don't know if that means that it isn't required in Georgia, but I think if these allegations are true, and I'm, I'm not willing to believe that they are true yet, but certainly there's enough there that is concerning. I think the reason they are concerning and the argument is that if Fonny Willis has a relationship with somebody who is a, a contract attorney, that that is a problem. But the reason that's a problem is because to the extent that she was involved in hiring that person, that when they go, you know, if they're dating and he takes her out to dinner or he takes her on a vacation or he buys her a gift, the appearance that the money he is getting paid to work for Fulton County is coming out of official funds that she played a role in hiring him potentially. I mean, that's again, we don't know what the actual facts are because those specific facts aren't anywhere in the filing. But it is not only the appearance of impropriety there, but the argument is, and it's the same reason that you know, you have things like, you know, many, the military, but all kinds of workplaces. If you have a personal relationship, you don't want to have that with somebody in your chain of command because you don't want to be seen in appearance or in fact of, you know, giving somebody a promotion or selecting somebody for training or doing anything that's either beneficial or avoiding any sort of, uh, you know, punishment or discipline. Same thing with financial stuff. So that's, that's the argument about how, they, she might be profiting at the expense of the taxpayers. Again, this is a an allegation and a filing. There is not detail behind it. I do think mm. if this if there's anything there, given Roman's background, he is the sort of person who's going to find it. But you know, we'll see soon enough. I, I think we've got some timetable for when the response is due. But at this point, it's a, it's an allegation that's long on suggestion, but very short on specific fact at this point. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, like, would you have to prove that he picked up the tab for her stuff? And does it matter how he spends his money because he gets paid the same as the other special prosecutors and she's not dating all of them? Like, I just I, I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around where the conflict of interest stands. And I think that that's what at least what they're saying in this filing is that, Willis gave Wade a contract and she's benefiting because she's dating him and he pays for stuff. And that somehow creates a, a conflict. But, you know, I think the ultimate goal here, uh, Pete, by by Roman and others, uh, other defendants probably, too, 
is to get this out of the DA's office and up to the attorney general, who is a Republican um, and maybe more favorable to them in this particular case. But I got to say, there was an incident earlier on in this case where Fonnie Willis actually held a fundraiser for the opponent of one of the defendants in the case, uh, a p- opponent of Burt Jones. She was removed, recused from prosecuting him, and they had to get a different prosecutor. I think they're still trying to find one to to investigate him. But she had to recuse from that. But they didn't remove her entire office from the case because of that, what I would consider to be, um, uh, even if this dating thing is true, I would think hosting a, a political fundraiser for the opponent of a defendant in one of your cases is a bigger conflict of interest than uh, a personal relationship. Seems like an HR matter to me. But again, I, I'm not familiar with Georgia law. Um, uh, Fonnie Willis responded a little bit during her speech at AME. And uh, the the judge has said, you know, because in a recent hearing, they, you know, this was this issue was raised. And he said, I'm, I'm not going to set a hearing for this Mike Roman motion until February earliest so that the, the DA has a chance to respond uh, to it on the docket. So we'll see what uh, that is as as of this moment, as of this recording on Monday afternoon, there is not yet a response. Right. And some of this, you know, there's the issue of what the law says. There's also the attorney code of conduct and in particular prosecutors and their obligations. So separate and distinct from whether or not there's something that, you know, is legal or not here. There's a question about whether or not there are any sort of ethical violations. But again, that what what's assuming this to be true, and I'm not willing to assume yet that it is true. The question is, what's the sanction? And, you know, to your point about talking about Burt Jones, it is far from clear to me that even if there is something that's a, you know, a potential problem here, that the fix, the solution is to throw away and throw out all these indictments. I mean, that seems a little bit uh, extreme. So, you know, let's, first things first. guilty, please. Let's, let's <laughs> get the, yes. I mean, let's get the facts in a form that, you know, is sworn to by somebody on the defendant side that these allegations are more than just some nebulous accusations and a filing lacking any sort of fact behind it, or at least sworn f- allegation of fact. And then from that, see how it unfolds. But, you know, it's not... Well, she has been subpoenaed to testify in the divorce or in, in Wade's divorce proceeding. So they have some sort of... Uh, they know each other personally right. in some capacity. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't know. You're, we, you know, like you said, we need to get some sworn affidavits in here. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's time. And I think the goal, obviously, is to, you know, create it, throw as much mud out there as possible. But, you know, from from Willis's perspective, you know, not, at this point, honesty and openness about everything's going on is the best way to approach this. And if there's any sort of issue, then, you know, lean into it and get that out there and figure out what the best solution is to maintain the prosecution. And, you know, whatever sanction or change in anything that might be appropriate, you know, figure that out. But we've got a lot, you know, and again, typical, you know, kind of dirty trick fashion, throw this allegation out there, get a lot of people talking about it, don't have a lot of fact behind it yet. And it's and it worked. So, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, is it troubling? You know, yeah, for me, it is. I I, I want to see that mm-hmm. seems like more than a a made up frivolous allegation, but we don't have a lot of facts yet. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But, you know, while we're in Fulton County, you know, and talking about uh, Judge McAfee, last Wednesday, he ruled that prosecutors uh, in the election racketeering case can depose Susan Holmes. Now, if you don't remember who Susan Holmes is, 
She's a woman who declined to falsely certify Donald Trump as the winner of the 2020 presidential race in the state. In a motion earlier this week seeking to depose Holmes, prosecutors in Fulton County uh, said Holmes was, quote, recruited and qualified to serve as a candidate for presidential elector in early 2020. Continuing, the prosecutors write, she was not aware of the December 14, 2020 alternate elector meeting described in the indictment until she was asked to attend it by an unindicted co-conspirator. Her position was that she would not attend the meeting because she knew that defendant Donald Trump did not win the presidential election in Georgia. Prosecutors say that Holmes, quote, has testimony regarding the recruitment of individuals to attend the December 14 meeting that other witnesses do not have and that no other witness can testify to. Mm. Now, you know, <laughs> there's some speculation, I, you know, given given her age and given her advanced age, that there may be a desire to, you know, get her on the record while, you know, memory is comparatively fresh and she's able to to sit for a deposition. But I think, you know, it's it's compelling. It's compelling testimony because you have somebody who's sitting there saying, hey, I was there. I was there and I refused to do it because I knew and that, uh, you know, others should have known and perhaps did know that Trump didn't win the election, but they win anyway. So that'll be a presumably a, a helpful deposition for the prosecution. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, it's just interesting they wanted to get her uh, deposition on the record now. So it, it'll be fascinating to see what she has to say and what she has to add. Um, next up, Judge McAfee has denied a series of motions from Harrison Floyd. You know him. He's one of the mm. co-conspirators that intimidated Ruby Freeman and who almost had his bail revoked, right? Now, the judge says in his ruling that there is a standing order that provides that the parties cannot file uh, form motions compelling the generalized disclosure of discoverable materials or the general exclusion of evidence and that such non-specific motions will not be considered by the court. And further, motions must be sufficiently particularized and tailored to the facts of the case at hand to, to provide legal notice to opposing parties. The defendant, the judge said, is welcome to file timely particularized motions concerning discovery should newly obtained information become relevant. All parties are expected to follow the law. With these provisions in mind, the court denies the following defense motions. As generalized, lacking particularity, vague, or overly broad, and further exercises its discretion to decline to issue a pretrial ruling. And those motions were a motions to reveal the deal, a plea in bar, and a plea in abatement. So these motions to just basically like Trump tried to do, Pete, in the DC case, where he's like, I want all of the material that was hidden by the January 6th committee. You can't compel discovery without being specific and particular about what you're trying to go after. You have to know a document exists and know that it hasn't been provided in discovery um, and ask for those specifically. Uh, so that's sort of what the judge, I think, uh, why he denied uh, all three of these motions from Harrison Floyd. He's just vague and um, overbroad. Yeah, and if if you think that's it from Fulton County, <laughs> pulling that line from nope, Princess Bride, nope. <laughs> no, we're just getting started. Next up, you know, as we know, the pretrial motion deadline was January eighth, which is that was the deadline to file all the motions to dismiss, which is why we got all of those filings last week. Now, Judge McAfee has denied all of them to extend that deadline, except for one, 
and that's General Assembly member Sean Still. Because he's a state legislator, he automatically gets an extension under the law. So instead of January 8th, this stuff isn't due until April 18th, so a while yet to go. Ah, okay. So just automatically, because he is part of the assembly, he gets that extension. Uh, Last up, there was a hearing for several issues this past Friday. Top line takeaways. Judge McAfee granted Trevion Cootie's lawyer's motion to withdraw as her counsel. So she's on the hunt for new lawyers. Good luck. Uh, You remember she filed that motion. Trump is weighing whether to join Mike Roman's motion about Fonnie Willis's clandestine relationship with Nathan Wade. And McAfee, like I said, said that he will not hold a hearing on the Roman motion until February at the earliest because he needs to give Fonnie Willis time to respond, the DA. And prosecutors confirmed that they coordinated with the January 6th committee early on in the investigatory stage. You know, all, of course, other Republicans are like, it's collusion. You colluded with the January 6th committee. And and apparently they think that's some kind of gotcha, but we've known about it since it happened. I mean, it was announced. It was a, it was a public story. So in this hearing, the prosecutors just confirmed, yeah, we, we coordinated with the 16th committee. Remember when we said it and we did it? It's all here. Uh, and Rudy had a double jeopardy motion. And I. Uh, this made me laugh. His lawyers told the judge they're concerned that other states could prosecute Rudy for the same crimes, violating his double jeopardy protections. And Judge McAfee was like, how does this is a quote? How does that become a double jeopardy issue since the states are separate sovereigns? Couldn't you be convicted in every single state without any double jeopardy concerns whatsoever? And Rudy's lawyer said, you may have a point there. <laughs> Just it's weird. Like Lionel Hutz. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Judge? You might be onto something. <laughs> I'll go tell my client. Uh, so anyway, that's everything that's, uh, well, that's most of what's going down in Fulton County. For like super great details, you've got to follow like Anna Bauer and um uh, tamar hollerman i mean they have they have so many so much good reporting on on what's going on with these and we'll try to stay on top of everything as much as they do um, yeah. but um that's those those are the top those are the those are the headlines from we'll, fulton county we'll see if we can like uh without uh royalty needs pull that lionel hutz quote from the simpsons but that's why you're the judge <laughs> and i'm the law talking guy <laughs> <laughs> the law talking guy. It's unbelievable. You get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. And, and Rudy is apparently not paying much. He's maybe, is he trying to act broke so he doesn't have to pay his bills? Because, I mean, like, is he just, is he like has a terrible lawyer to be like, look, if I had money, I'd be able to hire a better attorney. Like, it, feel, it just feels weird. <laughs> oh, all right, everybody. We have a lot more news to get to. Uh, But we need to take a really quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA 
As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. We have some more new patrons to thank. Carrie Wicca, Joey St. Clair, Gina Kelly, Becca St. John, Regional Wine Lady, Guy Stevens, Angie Matke, Suzanne Nichols, Terry Schinken, or Schinkine, and Carly, thank all of you so much. You make this possible. You are the reason that we can bring this to you on a weekly basis. And particularly as you're hearing today with everything going on, it's only going to get busier. And the reason we can talk about that and bring it to you is because of our patrons. So thank all of you so very much. And with that, let's get on a plane and fly up to New York. The long-awaited closing arguments wrapped up in the New York Attorney General Civil Fraud Trial. Now, as we all know, it's gone from a ask of $250 million up to $370 million. And before we even got into the courthouse on that final uh, argument, a bomb threat swatting Judge Ingoran occurred that morning. And a Nassau County bomb squad was called to Ingoran's home and was investigating on Thursday morning. It's not clear whether or not Ingoran was home at the time. And then last Wednesday, there was a tense email exchange between Ingoran and Trump attorney Chris Kyes over whether Trump could speak at closing arguments. Kai's refused to agree to the rules of closing arguments because, you know, Trump is special and unlike any of us, he should get his own rules. And as a result, Ingorn denied the request. But during the proceeding, <laughs> Trump launched into a tirade without permission, and the judge let him go at it for a few minutes before finally telling Kai's to control his client. But before he stopped talking, Trump, of course, went through his whole litany of, of victimhood. He just such a. I, I, just as an aside, I know you he is swear. such a whiny man. He is such a, he is insufferable. He is the person sitting behind you at the football game or the basketball game where everything's a foul and everything is wrong and everything is bad. He just is a nonstop walking complaint. He is the person you don't want to sit next to in the theater. He's the person you don't want to stand next to in line. He is the person you don't want to have sit down next to you on the Metro. He is just an abysmal, awful 
person. And this, the, and of course, no different. He blamed Biden for his legal troubles and accused the president of weaponizing law enforcement to block him from returning to the White House. Obviously false. He lauded a new report from a notorious right-wing conspiracy site, the Gateway Pundit, to claim that James improperly met with Biden at the White House while she was pursuing Trump in state court, which is entirely misleading. He accused James's office of misusing a New York fraud law to go after him and his companies. Quote, this is a statute, a consumer fraud statute that has never been used for anything like this before. And it's a shame, which is, of course, complete BS. He then claimed that some of his legal rights were violated, like being deprived of the right to a jury. Wrong. And blamed James's litigiousness for the oil giant ExxonMobil. Of course, one of the pull him randomly into his little, you know, the, the, the pieces of confetti spinning about in his brain about relocating from New York to Texas, which is wrong. And then finally, he admitted, <laughs> the one thing he got right, he admitted that they tripled the square footage of his Manhattan triplex, which, you know, every, every you know, Brooklyn clock being right twice a day, <laughs> that, that was the one fact that Trump managed to get right in his tirade before his attorney was instructed to control this client by the presiding judge. Yeah. And everybody was, you know, like, why didn't the judge stop him? Why isn't he put held in contempt? Why isn't he put in jail? Fair questions. State court's a little looser uh, than federal court. But, um, you know, I, honestly, if I'm Judge Angoron, it's, do you remember um, the movie Liar, Liar yes. with Jim Carrey? Yes. And the judge is like, it is only out of sheer morbid curiosity that I am letting this circus continue. <laughs> and and that's kind of maybe what I feel like, because you give enough rope to Trump, he's going to hang himself with it. So, you know, I, I, he only let him go on for a few minutes before he told Kais to control his client. Then, of course, Trump stormed out. But um, anyway, it's um, the, the ExxonMobil thing was fun because... He said Tis James drove ExxonMobil out of New York. They left in 89. She, she, I think he might actually think 1989 is more recent um, than it is. Um, but something else that happened in New York. Remember when Donald Trump sued Mary Trump, the New York Times and the, the reporters from the New York Times, Suzanne Craig and two of Suzanne's colleagues for that 2018 piece on Trump's finances uh, and Mary Trump's for I don't know, being part of it. But, um, you know, they filed a motion to dismiss the case and it was dismissed because it was frivolous. It was a long time ago. May of last year is when it was dismissed. But this week, the judge in that case has ordered Trump to pay the attorney's fees for Mary Trump, the New York Times, Suzanne Craig et al. to the tune of almost $400,000, $392,000. So much winning. uh, So much winning. Yeah. So much big winning. Um, all right. Uh, I want to also uh, scoot down while we're in New York to Eugene and um, it, it talk a little bit about what's going on the Eugene because tr- the Eugene Carroll case, because the trial began began on Tuesday. You're listening to this Wednesday. We record Monday. So for us, the trial starts tomorrow. For you, it started yesterday. Um, a little background. Again, this is Carroll 1 because Carroll 2 was for you know stuff that he said after he left office and the jury found he sexually assaulted Eugene Carroll and defamed her and awarded $5 million. And this is one, this is about what he said while he was president. We've talked about this several times. It could be way more in damages because he had a much bigger megaphone and when he was president. Um, and a couple of things happened this week. First of all, Eugene's motion in limine was granted 
And here's what it said, that Trump is prohibited from introducing evidence, comments, testimony concerning E. Jean's choice of lawyer. Um, any outside litigation between Trump and E.G. concerning DNA, litigation funding, E. Jean's past romantic relationships, uh, her sexual disposition or prior sexual experiences, all of that is barred. He can't say that he didn't sexually abuse E. Jean Carroll. He can't say he didn't defame her. And he can't say that she fabricated her story. Uh, and she's allowing the Access Hollywood tape into evidence. Now, that was on January 9th. And two days later, E. Jean notified the court. Uh, Robbie Kaplan, E. Jean's lawyer, sent a letter to the court. The parties met and conferred yesterday, meaning we met with Trump's lawyers, to discuss certain evidence that the defendant intends to introduce at trial. And during that call, it quickly became apparent that the defendant intends to circumvent the court's recent ruling in order to put before the jury evidence that is not only irrelevant and unduly prejudicial, but also clearly contrary to the court order that you issued a couple days ago. First. At the last minute, Trump subpoenaed someone named Ms. Martin to testify on behalf. Um, e. Jean's lawyer just found out about that, you know, she intends to give testimony about E. Jean's demeanor in the, the days following Trump's defamatory statements. That's not allowed under this order, right? Because she's going to come in and say, she seemed fine to me. You know, that's not allowed. You can't infer that. That's barred uh, after the grant of the motion in limine. And then also after the order, during the meet and confer, the defendant listed several exhibits he intends to introduce that clearly violate your order. For example, the CNN interview that E. Jean Carroll gave with uh, Anderson Cooper, where she talked about how society sees rape as sexy, uh, or an email from E. Jean about how she wants to do more podcasts about her book, or another email about her intention to sell books at an event. And these were all tri things Trump tried to bring in in Carroll 2, the first trial, um, out of context, of course, to try to discredit E. Jean Carroll. And none of it's allowed in. So um, they just, you know, the Kaplan, uh, Roberta Kaplan is just notifying the court. Trump also wanted to, to delay the trial another week for his mother-in-law's funeral, but got caught red-handed um, <laughs> because he scheduled a campaign event the day that he wanted to go to the funeral. Um, and he also requested to testify in his own defense. Now, Robbie Kaplan opposed those requests, but the judge ruled on January 12th, three days after the announcement of the death of Ms. Trump's mother, uh, Melania's mom, his mother-in-law, and the day before the defendant's request, his counsel informed the court by email that Trump would attend the trial. The trial date in this case wasn't, was set seven months ago. A jury panel was summoned a long time ago. A postponement would disrupt and inconvenience prospective jurors, counsel, court staff, security arrangements, and likely cause other logistical scheduling problems. So accordingly, the court denied the request, but noted that the defendant is free to attend the funeral, the trial, or both. And even in the event that the defendant rests his defense case sometime on Thursday, January 18th, subject only to Mr. Trump's testimony, the court would grant a continuance until Monday, January 22nd, for the purpose of hearing Trump's testimony. But the footnote, Pete, the court subsequently learned that Mr. Trump has scheduled a campaign appearance 7 p.m. Wednesday, January 17th in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So that's a little embarrassing. Well, what a load of crap. You know, and if I were the judge and, you know, judges tend to have more you know, different temperaments, I would bring Mr. Trump and his attorneys onto a, you know, a conference call and say, look, I, I'm happy to grant this continuance. Answer one question. What is the full name of your mother-in-law? 
I guarantee you he will not be able to come out with that answer. Guarantee it. And it's such BS because clearly he is scheduling campaign appearances. He is in Iowa. He is heading to New Hampshire. This is nothing but a fig leaf. The extent of his consideration of Melania's mother is whether or not he can get additional tax write-offs if she agrees to bury her at Bedminster next to Ivana. And and mm-hmm. it, it just come on, I, this is clearly nonsense. It is yet another example of Trump trying to push the judicial system for rules that apply to nobody else and exceptions that should only apply to him. I'm glad the court isn't having any of it. And again, we'll see soon. I mean, this is this week. You know, as as you're listening to it, uh, this is going on, and we'll have if Trump is going to uh, testify, uh, we'll be able to talk about it next week for the next episode. Yeah, we sure will. Uh, and real quick before we before we head to a break, uh, Joey Taco Pants has uh, withdrawn as counsel from uh, E. Jean Two. He's on the appeal case there, the first one, the five million dollar one, and also the Stormy Daniels uh, hush money Alvin Bragg case. He has withdrawn. We don't know why. We don't know if he was fired. We don't know if he's leaving. Um, although Trump has recently said that. You know, and and in the past has also said that that uh, Takapina screwed up uh, by not allowing Trump to testify. So I don't know. Maybe on he's trying to be able to say that he had insufficient or ineffective counsel in the first E. Jean trial for when he appeals that five million dollar award. I'm not sure. Uh, we just uh, everybody who has reached for comment didn't have one. So once we find out, we'll let you know. All right, we have to take a quick break, but we're going to be right back with one of the lawyers, one of the attorneys handling the Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss case, um, their defamation suit against Rudy Giuliani. We have an update on that for you. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat 
with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. We have some more new patrons to thank. Thank you so much, Jennifer Slocum, John Pentecost, Headphone Friends with a Z, Cindy, Paul Blaze, production note. Paul is getting a second shout out because Paul has two accounts. Paul, if you don't mean to have two accounts, you can contact us at aisle45pod at gmail.com so we can help sort that out. And D, Sarah Czar, Rebecca Clayton, Dr. Michael Foreman, and Kaz Curry. So thank you all so very much for being patrons. You make this show happen. You're supporting independent media and you're awesome. And next up, to bring us up to speed on the status of the Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss defamation case against Rudy Giuliani, please welcome one of the attorneys for the Georgia election workers, Meryl Conant-Gavernsky. Welcome, Meryl. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so, so excited to talk to you, and I know Pete is too. First of all, congratulations, $148 million award. And we know that for part of the damages, they were seeking 15 to 43 million. And then there were additional emotional distress damages and punitive damages that we've totaled now 148 million. And so congratulations, first of all, on that award. Thank you. We are absolutely thrilled. We're thrilled for our clients, but we're also thrilled for the message that it sends to people who choose to spread lies about public servants like our clients that they're going to be held accountable and they're going to be held accountable in a very significant way. And that's kind of the whole point of this, right? I I feel like it wasn't so much about the money for these incredibly brave women who I consider to be American heroes. I was in the room when they, uh, when Shea Moss testified to the January 6th select committee uh, and it was very um, moving uh, testimony and just their lives were completely upended. And I felt like deterrence, like we need, I, I know there were several times when your team said, we need to send a message to not just Rudy Giuliani, but anybody else in the future who thinks that it's okay to go after election workers, people just doing their jobs. That's right. It is about deterrence. Of course, for our clients, we would like to see them receive as much of the verdict as possible because they do have significant expenses and they are entitled to, to recover the compensatory harms that they suffered. But it is about accountability. But I think it also sends another message um, and it's a it's a piece that you touched on in terms of being able to watch our clients testify in front of January 6th committee. Not everybody had the opportunity to see them testify in court. And it was an incredibly impactful, moving experience to see them take the stand in front of the man who perpetuated lies about them, who was the orchestrator of a campaign to target them as scapegoats. Uh, for his own personal and political motives. And to see the bravery and the courage it took for them to get on that stand and face him and answer questions, um, at least Miss Moss, answer questions uh, of Mr. Giuliani's uh, lawyer um, during cross-examination. And that was incredibly impactful. And I think the message that they sent, and by the way, Ruby 
would have been more than ready to handle those questions too. <laughs> but uh, Rudy Giuliani's lawyer chose not to cross-examine her. So, uh, but the message that they sent to victims of disinformation is that you can stand up to them. There is a way to stand up and hold them accountable and speak the truth. And a jury will listen and a jury will hear your words and a jury will respond accordingly. And so that is a very powerful message as well. Yeah, I remember after their testimony in, in the January 6th committee, Harry Dunn, Officer Harry Dunn, who I was there with, uh, got up and went right over um, to Shay Moss and, and Ruby Freeman and whispered something in her ear. They hugged. He came back over. I said, "You p- tell me what you said. And he said, "You, you basically... Thank you. You are so brave for being able to do this publicly. So I thought that that was a moving moment. I remember Um, that moment. I remember it from the other side, sitting behind Shay. And I also had the privilege of helping prep Shay for uh, that testimony. And during when we were sitting there right before she was about to begin, you know, something else that is incredibly intimidating is when you see all the press right in front of that testimony, in front of that witness um, table. And to see them all there with the members of Congress there is incredibly intimidating and nerve wracking. And Shay turned around and she looked at me and I thought she was looking for tissues. And um, and she looked at me and I just kind of gave her a nod and, you know, and a, a reassurance like you got this, you can do this. Turns out later she was turning around to say, I'm not sure I could do this. Like, what am I doing? This is terrifying. And the, the So it wasn't, it looked easy. She made it look easy, but it wasn't. I mean, that is a very scary experience. And so the courage that it took, I think is easy to kind of overlook. But when you're sitting in that room, it's certainly not easy. Yeah, absolutely. I thought she did a great job. And it's, you can't prepare unless you're from that environment. Just from the moment you step foot going through the magnetometer, just the press is there and it's nonstop. So I, I was watching from television, you know, thought, she did an amazing job. There was not that what I am certain was that overwhelming and, you know, having been there too, that just packed in front of you, crouching down in the front and the sides and they don't move them out until the very end. So, you know, she did spectacularly. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to Rudy. So he declared bankruptcy. And I think I read somewhere that that even with that declaration that based on the type of award, he will not be able to shield certain or perhaps all of his assets from recovery. Can you walk through a little bit how that how that works in, in the context of his declaring bankruptcy and what you know the process is at this point continuing to go after assets? Absolutely. Yes. Our position is that these these uh this verdict is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. So this this verdict will follow him forever. Uh, irrespective of, it, of his attempt to try to get out of accountability by filing for bankruptcy. Uh, you know, one thing that's interesting is the timing here. Uh, we asked the judge to uh, deny uh, the automatic 30-day stay. So ordinarily, uh, the civil rules of procedure allow for an automatic 30-day stay at the end of which the defendant has to either post a bond or we are entitled as the plaintiff to start executing on our judgments, which means starting to attach his property and go after his assets. So we asked Judge Howell to do away with his automatic stay, in part because we were concerned that he would try to play games and hide some assets and 
we wanted to be able to move as quickly as humanly possible for our clients. So in, as soon as the judge denied that stay, uh, Mr. Giuliani went and filed for bankruptcy. And he now is asking the bankruptcy court to, well, of course, in bankruptcy, there's an automatic stay of any other civil procedure, civil cases. So he has now asked the bankruptcy court to lift the stay in our case so that he can appeal. But he has said to the court, under no circumstances should you allow Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss to ex execute against the judgment. And he also has not mentioned anything about a bond. So it kind of is just characteristic of what got us here in the first place, which is an attempt to go around the rules that every other civil litigant is obligated to follow. He doesn't want to post a bond. He doesn't want us to attach uh, his property to our judgment, but he wants to be able to appeal, which, by the way, is going to be a frivolous appeal. Our judgment is going to be with upheld. We're very confident about that. So there is a hearing on Friday in the bankruptcy court about a number of things, including this uh, motion to lift the stay. Uh, and we are optimistic and we will argue that he can't have his cake and eat it too. If he wants the protections of bankruptcy, um, he can't also, you know, appeal the case and not and, and get around the rules of civil procedure. Yeah, he like wants it like a like a half stay, right? Like <laughs> you can't. It's, you it's can't Calvin use... Ball, right? I, I'm going to make up the <laughs> make up the rules. Yeah, you stay this... only to only to um, benefit him, right? A yeah. sword, in a, yes, the sword and a shield. Um, and I know you also asked for an enforceable injunction um, from the judge, so that he, so that the court would enjoin him from continuing to defame Miss um, Moss and Miss Freeman. Uh, has the judge ruled on on that yet, or do you have a sense of when she will? So we actually separated that from the case that went to a jury. So we were we were entitled and received a final judgment on the monetary relief that we sought and also declaratory relief that uh, the parties jointly agreed to. And we received a final judgment at which point triggered our right to start enforcing. And then that led to the bankruptcy. We filed a separate case um, seeking injunctive relief um, in connection with the statements that Mr. Giuliani made during the trial as well as continued to make after the trial. So that case, my understanding is stayed for the time being. We'll see what happens with this motion to lift the stay. Uh, but, and you know, our position now is kind of all eyes are on the bankruptcy. Um, but of course, we are watching. And if he continues to make statements about our clients, um, we're going to, you know, be there. You mentioned you had some concern that he might try and move or hide assets. What what mechanisms are in place? Say he did, I mean, you know, any number of his fraud guarantee buddies over from Ukraine, if he decided he wanted to move stuff offshore, are, are there means in place through the bankruptcy court that you can tell identified financial institutions here in the U.S.? There's a there's a, a hold or a lien or whatever the term would be on this account and essentially freeze that from being transferred out of the U.S., uh, somewhere else or how how concerned are you about his ability to move assets to a place where you can't reach them 
Yeah, like can you get Barbara Jones, for example, appointed to babysit his assets while <laughs> while this is all stayed or or pending appeal? Well, we're very lucky at Wilkie to have incredible uh, a team of incredible bankruptcy lawyers who we've brought in to continue to help because this is not my area of expertise. Uh, so our our bankruptcy folks have handled uh, some work for Sandy Hook against Alex Jones, and so this is directly in their bailiwick. And my understanding is that our tools of discovery and the bankruptcy process are pretty broad, uh, which is every litigator's dream. So I was very excited to hear that we have uh, broad discovery powers and we intend to use them. Uh, but in terms of the the mechanics of enforcement and how we go after that, I, I have to defer to my my bankruptcy experts, which I am not. Yeah, I know that makes sense. Um, and it's interesting that, um, you know, you bring up Alex Jones and we talk about people who are working on other high profile cases, uh, which brings me to my next question. Um, uh, one of your expert witnesses in the um, in the Ruby Freeman Shea Moss case, I believe her name is uh, Dr. Ashley Humphreys. Uh, she was the one who came in and, and, and Pete and I've talked a little bit about this um, on the show already. She came in and, and testified about the breadth and scope and the reach of, of these defamatory lies. And that is what helped the jury reach their uh, award number. And that exact same expert witness is going to be testifying in the E. Jean Carroll trial, which started Tuesday of this week. Um, and uh, immediately after the $148 million judgment, Donald Trump tried to get this witness stricken from from his case uh, because I think she's so powerful and potent. Can you talk a little bit about about um, her her testimony and, and how that all came uh, came to be and, and what you see her being able to do in the E. Jean trial? Yeah, I am so glad you brought up Dr. Humphreys. I just think she is brilliant. And on top of that, she's a really exceptional human being and person. And I am privileged that I've had the opportunity to get to know her. We actually first started talking with Dr. Humphreys a number of years ago when we were representing the family of Seth Rich, uh, the DNC staffer who was murdered and uh, quickly became the target of of conspiracy theories that he was responsible for the DNC documents uh, getting over to Russia as opposed to WikiLeaks. And so she served as our expert in in the case that we filed against a number of individuals on behalf of Seth Rich's brother, Aaron Rich, who got swept into this uh, into this mess. And she, she didn't end up testifying because um, that case, we ended up reaching settlement. But she... Uh, that was when we started to really get into the weeds with what her expertise is and what her science is. And the reason that it was so important to us to find an expert like Dr. Humphreys is because private individuals, individuals who, you know, don't have fancy jobs or celebrity status um, are entitled to the full compensation of reputational harm. Their reputations are worth just as much, if not more, than individuals who are in the limelight. And yet, and yet there wasn't a way to quantify what a private reputation is worth. But we were convinced that there must be a way that a jury could award um, a significant amount to a private individual for the loss of her, his or her reputation, even if they don't have a brand yet. 
you know, they have they don't have a public brand. And so what she did is she or what she does um, now is she quantifies the number of impressions, the number of people who saw the defamatory messages and and who that message resonated with people who believed what they heard. And then once you have the number of impressions, she came comes up with a way to repair, to reach those same people and to counter program, to, to inundate them with the truth, the opposite of what they've heard. And, you know, she has always said that the cost to repair is, you know, three to five to seven times the cost to create the original impression. It's harder to undo um, a, a misinformation, disinformation than it is to create the impression in the first place. So that is really the centerpiece of her work. And so we use that to to create a damages model in this case, which only honestly evaluated a small number of defamatory statements, even though the harm to our clients was broader than that, including an emotional harm. She quantified the reach of a handful of uh, Giuliani's defamatory statements about our clients. And that is what that defamation damages number was derived from. So on top of that, they also found emotional damages and punitives, which were entirely separate from her work. So applying that to shifting a little bit to the e fact pattern up in New York, again, um, also defamation. But in this case, you're talking about the president or a person who was president at the time. And I know a lot of the, I was there at at your trial for her uh, testimony. And a lot of it went to those impressions, the reach of Rudy's audience when you compare that to Trump's audience. And, you know, we're not asking you for your formal legal opinion, but how would you, pivoting from what uh, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss experienced at the hands of Rudy, how do you compare that to what Eugene Carroll faced with uh, Donald Trump and his statements to the extent you're familiar with uh, the, the statements at issue? So I haven't uh, reviewed her report in that case or the statements at issue, but I, I can extrapolate a little bit from some of the statements in our case. The January 2nd call uh, between Donald Trump and Brad Raffensperger uh, was one of the actionable statements in our case. And so uh, Dr. Humphreys did trace the number of impressions uh, of the reach of that statement, which was massive. Um, and that didn't include, you know, and, and and we said in our case, you know, Donald Trump has the the biggest megaphone you can imagine. And so the statements that he, that pe- the people who hear his statements and believe his statements, uh, there are many of them. And so I, I can only imagine the number of impressions of people who hear uh, his messaging and believe it would lead to an incredibly high impressions model. Because of, of course, the res- there, there's various inputs for her model, and one of them is how receptive the audience is. So when you think about who was hearing these messages and who was internalizing them and believing them, um, you can imagine that that number would be very great when uh, Mr. Trump himself is is making statements over and over um, to his followers. Yeah, especially as president, um, considering the E. Jean two, the first trial, were statements made after he had left office and probably didn't have the megaphone that he had when he had a Twitter account and 
was president of the United States. And you you brought something up that brings me to my last question, because Donald Trump did also say the same kinds of statements about uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss uh, with his huge giant megaphone. And I know that Miss um, Freeman, I believe, Miss um, Ruby, Lady Ruby, said after the verdict that, you know, there's other things and that's tomorrow's work. So my obvious question is, do you plan on on filing uh, litigation against uh, anybody else, including uh, the, the former president? We're keeping all options open. Our clients have proven that they're willing to hold people accountable. Uh, but, you know, nothing definitive at this point to to announce. OK, understood. We- Thank you very much for your diplomatic answer. We really appreciate you coming on and joining us today. Pete, do you have any uh, follow ons or any final questions? No, really appreciate your time. Quick question, uh, keeping all those options open. You ha- you were in D.C. for this defamation trial. What was the hook for venue? And is that, you know, looking looking at other options, uh, does that return you to D.C.? Or are there any other places that you'd look? Well, so in defamation law, you know, traditionally it's where the statements were uttered. Um, but it also can be where the statements are are felt or where they are intended to reach. And so here it was that the target of many of these statements were clearly targeted to a D.C. audience, um, and they specifically were intended to disrupt the legislative, uh, the the process of certifying the election in D.C. But I should note that Giuliani never challenged personal jurisdiction, so that wasn't a fight. It would have been a reasonable argument. I don't know why he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All of his other arguments were like, what the F are you talking about, bro? That would have, that would have been a reasonable one. Uh, but his lawyer uh, kind of showed his colors in Fulton County uh, this week when, you know, he, he he was trying to argue double jeopardy because he might be brought up on charges in other states. And the judge was like... Uh, those are all separate sovereigns, so he could be charged in all 50 states and not face double jeopardy. And Rudy's lawyer was like, you bring up a good point, Judge. So I don't know if I have the much utmost confidence in, in uh, Rudy Giuliani's legal team. <laughs> yeah, reasonableness is not something that immediately comes to mind when we think about some of the decisions throughout the course of our litigation. Of course, he ended up defaulting in our case. And so why he didn't choose to default in the beginning, as opposed to kind of having one foot in and one foot out, and ultimately defaulting is one major question that we have. Of course, we're fine with how things turned out, but it's all a little bit curious. Okay, but what was he trying to hide from you? I mean, he's paying, he's willing to pay $150 million to, to not hand over something. Exactly. What is so bad that he is refusing to avoid discovery? Yeah, I mean, it is a big question mark, especially because in terms of punitives, you know, you can be cabined by your net worth or there are certain factors. And so if you're trying to say, I have no money and you want a jury to come back with a lower number, a reasonable person would want to turn over and prove I have no money. My net worth is very small, so you shouldn't give me a large number. But that didn't happen here. So, of course, that is very curious. And then it's curious why he chose to kind of participate half you know, half-heartedly in discovery. He sat for a deposition. Zero-heartedly. I mean, he didn't hand over anything. (laughs) But he could have just not shown up in the first place, you know, which is the more traditional default judgment route. But he chose to kind of try to take this intermediate place, which is I'm going to produce documents. They just happen to not be responsive and they're corrupted and they don't actually, you know, give you anything that you want. So it's very 
again, reasonable is not a, a word that attaches <laughs> to the conduct throughout the litigation. Very true. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time today. Um, and um, it, it, just incredible work that you're doing, you and the whole legal team, and now the, the bankruptcy legal team. We look forward to, to learning more about that and what you know the options that you say are still open and on the table. We're looking forward to what's next. So again, thank you very much for joining us. Meryl Conant-Gavernsky, we appreciate your time. It's been fun talking with you both. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, welcome back. Our final set of new patrons to thank. We have Stuck on Struck, Sabrina Wind, No One of Consequence, Roxanne, Karen Martin, Erica Herzog, Ginny Fetz or Fetis, Anne Glanton, Stitch MH, and Desha Pinchiff. Thank all of you so much. Uh, absolutely critical to putting this out every week. Thank you for being part of the team. Thank you for your support. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Now, we couldn't have a show, Allison, if we didn't have House Republicans up to exciting shenanigans. Now, as, you, <laughs> as those of you watching the news might have seen, Hunter Biden showed up during a committee surprising the Republicans and also, by the way, the White House, and offered to testify before the Judiciary Committee before or as they were going to vote to hold Hunter Biden in contempt. 
shockingly, for not testifying. Yeah. <laughs> right, the GOP refused to let him to test, refused to let him testify publicly. Uh, Representative Jared Moskowitz agreed. He said, "Look, I will vote to hold Hunter Biden in contempt if you, my colleagues across the aisle, if you could also add Jim Jordan, Andy Biggs, Scott Perry, and some others to the contempt motion for defying their subpoenas." Again, shockingly enough, GOP refused to do that. Then Abby Lowell wrote a letter on January 12th to both uh, James Comer and Jim Jordan, reminding Comer, along with examples, that on multiple occasions, he offered that Biden come testify to the committee publicly or behind closed doors. Quote, I write to make you aware, if you're not already, that your subpoenas were and are legally invalid and cannot form a legal basis to proceed with your misdirected and impermissible contempt resolution. And you two, of all people, should know that is the case, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it it, it continues on that the 2023 subpoenas suffer the same infirmity as those objected to by them in 2019. Bill Barr wrote a 54-page memorandum opinion from OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel, in January 2020 that made it clear that, quote, the subpoena first, impeachment inquiry resolution second, unquote, approach taken then and being attempted now was and is improper. And Lowell essentially concluded, look, issue a new subpoena and we'll comply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. They bring in the Bill Barr Trump rule that says it's not impeachment unless it comes from the impeachment region of France. Otherwise, it's just bubbling treason. Um, Because that back when they wanted to impeach Donald Trump, it was uh, they got the OLC memo from Barr saying, sorry, you got to vote full house for impeachment before you can start to issue these subpoenas and have them be, you know, followed up on by the DOJ. Should anybody be in contempt? That's their rule. And it's still on the books. And so it applies here, which is what Pete that it would make any contempt referral to the Department of Justice impossible to prosecute. Sure. And even if even right. if Bill Barr was still the attorney general, it would be impossible to prosecute this uh, for contempt. So it's 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 all performative BS, as we know. Um, next up, and this might be my favorite. You know how during that rowdy hearing the past week ahead of the Hunter Biden contempt vote, it was brought up again by the House Dems that Trump took nearly eight million dollars from 20 foreign countries And why aren't Comer and Jordan looking into that? You know, Jamie Raskin had a really great uh, soliloquy on this. Now, of course, Comer denied those facts in the reporting from the Dems. But then in a town hall, Trump admitted to getting the $8 million from 20 foreign countries. (laughs) (laughs) He threw the House GOP under the bus. He said that that's such a small amount of money. I was doing services for them. I don't get $8 million for doing nothing. (laughs) So, Uh uh (laughs) Mm. (laughs) just just lay it all out there. Lay it all out there. And then Jamie Raskin also issued the following statement after Comer's committee concluded a voluntary transcribed interview with George Bears. Quote, Just like every other witness in this embarrassing slapstick investigation, George Bears stated he had no evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden. Hunter Biden made the art that Bears sold in his gallery, and President Biden had no knowledge of or role in these art sales. Continuing, it's not illegal to buy and sell abstract art in America. If Chairman Comer doesn't like Hunter Biden's paintings or modern art in general, he doesn't have to buy it. But Hunter Biden is allowed to create art and sell it. 
the GOP's allegations of influence peddling and money laundering are unfounded and were, once again, totally refuted by today's witness. If Chairman Comer seriously wants to stop corrupt foreign influence and violations of the Foreign Emoluments Clause, I encourage him to check out the millions of dollars Donald Trump raked in from foreign states and murderous monarchs. Alas, Chairman Comer blocked us from getting all the discovery to which we are entitled, but we got enough to know that Trump was on the take big time from foreign states, raking in huge spoils from the royals. Nice little rhyme there from Mm -hmm. Representative Raskin. He continues, meantime, George Bears confirmed today once again that Joe Biden was not involved in and did not profit from his family's business operations. We should get back to work for the American people and drop this futile investigation. Art appreciation is subjective, but the facts of this investigation aren't open to interpretation, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> there is no evidence of a presidential offense. Well said, <laughs> but but damn it, it just doesn't matter. Doesn't doesn't matter. Mm, no, N- not not. No, although Comer's walking it back now. He's second guessing his own impeachment inquiry. This is from CNN. <laughs> Republicans had hoped Hunter Biden could have helped prove their central allegation that his father, Joe Biden, engaged in a pay to play scheme and acted corruptly while in office. But Hunter Biden refused to testify behind closed doors. Uh, and now the GOP may simply assume what they haven't been able to prove, that the bribery scheme actually happened. Quote, well, I mean, if he doesn't show up, then I guess we'll just have to wrap it up without him <laughs> and assume these were bribes from foreign countries. That's what uh, Comer told CNN, adding that unproven allegations that Hunter Biden was involved in human trafficking oh. and money laundering. And that could also assume be assumed to be true. In an interview with CNN, Comer gave his latest insight to the committee's investigation, lowering expectations as doubts begin to grow within GOP ranks about whether it will actually lead to a successful (laughs) impeachment vote. Quote, I would vote to impeach him, but I'm not going to lose any sleep whether he gets impeached or not, because we know the Senate's not going to convict him. That's what Comer said of the Senate. And he insisted, quote, my job was never to impeach, (laughs) unquote. (laughs) So he's backing off of that horse real quick because, honestly, Abby Lowell has boxed him in with this letter. Your first um, subpoena, first of all, you told us to come in. Here's two examples. We have it on tape of you saying you can testify publicly or behind closed doors. Then when you reneged on that, um, it doesn't matter because your subpoena is not lawful per Bill Barr's Office of Legal Counsel memo. And then saying, if you issue us another subpoena, we will comply. He is boxed in now. He's boxed in. He has to issue this subpoena and bring him in. He'll testify behind closed doors. Of course, he'll lie his face off about whatever he you know, wants to spin about Hunter Biden, what he said. And we're going to demand the transcripts and they're never going to release them. But that's where we are. Yeah, you know, and it, it it's kind of understandable because, you know, Jim Comer, James Comer has a lot on his mind right now, including this from Roger Sullenberger at the Daily Beast, who's probably James Comer's worst nightmare right now. And he writes, quote, a review of dozens of tax, real estate and business filings in Kentucky and Tennessee indicate that Comer's own personal, quote, books and records, unquote, are opaque at best and improper at worst. Sonberger continues, those records include the dealings of Comer's shell company, Farm Team Properties, LLC, which the state of Kentucky has dissolved not once but twice for failure to file annual reports, first in 2020. Mm -hmm. And then again in 2022. That's uh, weird. Those are election years. Huh. Funny how that works. All right. Farm <laughs> Team Properties, LLC. 
An official with the Kentucky Department of Revenue told the Daily Beast that a company in administrative dissolution may not legally conduct business in the state, such as executing deals and leases, securing loans, or collecting rent as an LLC. But in response to questions about the Shell Company last month, Comer told Fox Business that Farm Team Properties not only holds properties, it also, quote unquote, manages them quote, leases hunting on my 1,600 acres of farmland, unquote, and generates, quote, lots of revenue, legitimate revenue, unquote. Now, keep in mind the previous month of that, he denied having an LLC at all during a committee hearing. Now, while Comer and his wife rectified the first dissolution, within a few weeks, they allowed the October 2022 dissolution to languish for more than a year only reinstating the entity last month. Hmm. W- when was that? Oh, yeah. After the Daily Beast first reported on the company <laughs> and flagged the dissolution on social media. It's not clear from Comer's filings whether Farm Team Properties LLC ceased business activity for those 14 intervening months. So, James Comer, <laughs> congratulations, buddy. Welcome to the big time. Welcome to the the eye of independent journalism taking a look at your business dealings. And I'll be damned if you are not exhibit number 7,438 of a Republican doing exactly what you have accused the other side of improperly doing. Congratulations. Welcome to that august club of corruption. <laughs> have fun stumbling through your next interview with Maria Bartiromo or Hannity or Laura Ingram, who seems to tear you anew. And every time you dare appear with her, because she won't, for one, put up with your BS. But it, it's lovely. And I look forward to the media's continuing interest in your business affairs in Kentucky and Tennessee. Well done, Representative. Yes. Thank you, Roger Sollenberger, for your diligent work at the Daily Beast, looking into the land, farmland, whatever, partners, LLC. Oh, just just glorious. It'd be very interesting to see if he was actually leasing or doing any business during those 14 months when he was uh, dissolved, when those businesses were dissolved in Kentucky, because that would violate some laws. All right, everyone. Thank you so, so much. Again, thanks to all our new patrons. Again, watch your inboxes on my birthday, January 20th. Noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. We've sent a poll to your inboxes to find out whether you want us to do a first come, first serve RSVP or whether you want us to open the RSVP up for a couple of days and then do a random lottery pick of the 150 people. You tell us how you want us to handle it, what you think is the most fair. We'll listen to all your arguments. We're trying to do it the best way we can um, because, I mean, I wish we had unlimited space. Uh, but we do have that fire marshal stuff. And we have to uh, ab- abide by the max cap, the, the maximum capacity. Uh, but thank you so much for being patrons. And we will have other events in the future. Fear not. Uh, all right. That, I don't have anything else. Uh, we got through everything. I can't believe we got through it all. We, Pete, do you have anything else you want to? We, we flew. And special thanks, of course, to Meryl Koenig Gavernsky for joining us. Just the spectacular work you were doing for Shamos, Ruby Freeman, and everything else in, in holding people accountable. Uh, who desperately need to be held accountable? Uh, thanks so much for that. And no, uh, let's let's we got a full week, and I, you know, it I think is going to be a struggle to uh, manage to fit all the news that we've got coming down the pike. But that's why we're here, and, and looking forward to it. And hey, this time next week, maybe we will have heard Trump on the stand uh, at Eugene. We'll see. Bets? You think yeah, it's going to happen? Yeah. I don't think he's going to testify <laughs> personally. Um, 
but he might, he could, he might, it'll be, there'll be a lot of objections. Um, we'll see what ends up happening, uh, in that particular case. Uh, we might, we might have a verdict by the next, by the next time we talk, uh, who knows, we'll, we'll, we'll see. And we'll report it all for you on cleanup on all 45. Thanks again so much for listening. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.